continue our time in the Heidelberg Catechism and our meditation on the Ten Commandments. This evening we'll look to question 99 and 100 from Lord's Day 36 as we examine and meditate upon uh, what's set forth in the third commandment. So I'll read the third commandment, which will really be the text for our homily this evening, and then I'll go ahead and read questions 99 and 100. The third commandment comes from Exodus 20, verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Thus ends the reading of God's word. And Lord's Day 36 gives us the basic bearing, the basic understanding of what it means to take the name of the Lord in vain, what is prohibited in this, and also the virtues that are enjoined. So question 99, what is God's will for us in the third commandment? That we neither blaspheme nor misuse the name of God by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths, nor share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders. In summary, we must use the holy name of God only with reverence and awe so that we may properly confess him, call upon him, and praise him in everything we do and say. And question 100, is blasphemy of God's name by swearing and cursing really such serious sin that God is angry also with those who do not do all they can to help prevent and forbid it? Yes, indeed. No sin is greater or provokes God's wrath more than blaspheming his name. That is why he commanded it to be punished with death. I've been watching a Netflix documentary on the 1990s Chicago Bulls. Growing up in Chicago during the 90s, there was nothing more exciting than watching Michael Jordan play basketball. I have vivid memories of it to this day. And the documentary talks about how Michael Jordan and the 1990s Bulls were a global phenomenon. And the internet wasn't even as popular as it is right now. So they and their global reach was truly an astonishing accomplishment. Everyone in the world, it seemed, knew the name Michael Jordan. And when they heard the name Michael Jordan, they didn't just think of the person, this six foot six basketball player from the University of North Carolina. They thought about who this person represented, all of his abilities, all of his accomplishments. The name, the person, and the accomplishments all stood in the most intimate of relationships. You heard Michael Jordan and you thought, that's the greatest basketball player 
of all time. This association of name and reputation is true of, of any name that you can think of. But the circle of knowledge will vary, right? Depending upon the scope of that person's influence. So, for example, if you say Michael Seifert, well, this church will have certain thoughts about me. Uh, the church in Washington, D.C., Walls Presbyterian, they'll have certain thoughts that come to mind. The professors in the Biblical Studies Department at the Catholic University of America, they'll have certain thoughts that come to mind, and so on and so forth. But it won't go much beyond that. And so it is for every single one of us. Our names evoke certain thoughts and attitudes in the hearts of those circles in which we have been active. So interestingly, it's not always only what we do that contributes to our reputation, right? It's not just what I've done that has built my reputation. Sometimes it's what others have attributed to me, either rightly or wrongly. Some people, I guarantee, some people think way too highly of me, way too highly of me. And there are probably some people who think too lowly of me. Anyway, split the difference. That's what I'd say. Or our reputations are generated when something is done in our name that we have nothing to do with. So, for instance, in our growing congregation, young parents, when their babies cry, I'm looking at you, baby Michael, <laughs> when their babies cry, they feel every cry acutely thinking, surely this is disrupting others. Or possibly, surely our peop people are getting a bad impression about my family. Another more humorous uh, variation on this theme um, comes with our own David Welliver. I'm not sure if you know this, but if, if you ask Elder Welliver why he carries a card around in his wallet that essentially says, no, I'm not that David Welliver. You'll get the idea. Something was done by another David Welliver that has left our David Welliver in a more vulnerable position than what he deserves. In the third commandment, God calls for the appropriate posture towards his name, which is reflected in how we handle his name. The commandment reads, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. And so the concern here is a concern with God's reputation, which is bound up with how the name of the Lord is handled and how those who bear the name of the Lord, Christians, how we live our lives and thus generate either right or wrong impressions of who our Lord is. And so there's an underlying assumption here. It matters what comes into our minds when we hear God's name. It matters what comes into the minds of others when they hear God's name. And part of what is fashioning what comes into the minds of others is how we, as God's people, handle his name in our daily conversation. How we're willing to have other handle, others handle his name in their daily conversation. And all of this comes together to indicate, ultimately, what is our posture toward the one who has given us his name? 
his name to call upon. Now, we know from Scripture, uh, and Scripture is plain about this, that if, if God's reputation were shaped and fashioned in our mind only by God's words, his perfections, and his works, and our minds worked properly, well, only the most reverent, adoring, awe-filled, and we might say appropriately fearful posture would be evoked. If God's reputation were only generated by God's words, God's character, and God's works, then only the most reverential and awe-filled postures would be struck by those who take his name. But we know our minds and our hearts don't work properly. And also, God's reputation is generated in part by the sinful actions of his people. And so it's a great tragedy that God's reputation and the reputation of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, at the end of the day, are woefully inadequate. They're woefully inadequate. In part, this is what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Have you ever thought about this? We use archaic language. We'll get to this in a few weeks. But when you pray, hallowed be thy name, what are you praying? You're praying, sanctify your name. You're praying, Lord, make your reputation align a little bit closer to truth. Because the world, ourselves included, have such a woefully low perception of your infinite majesty, of your infinite beauty, of your infinite goodness. And so there's a certain sadness, there's a certain tragedy that God's reputation in his creation falls woefully short of his infinite perfection. And it's an even greater sadness that we as his church are partly responsible for generating this. We who have done all manner of evil in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as we bear his name. Because we're all forced to acknowledge in some sense that we have handled God's name inappropriately because we do not properly perceive the infinity of his perfections. So then as question 100 points out, this is a much weightier matter than we're prone to think. God's reputation, how we handle his name, is freighted with the utmost severity in Scripture. Question 100 states, No sin is greater or provokes God's wrath more than blaspheming his name. That's a, that's a strong statement. That's a really strong statement. The constant witness of Scripture is that God is zealous for his name, that he constantly acts for the sake of his name. Or to sum it up, as Psalm 138.2 states, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And that makes sense, right? If salvation in some sense is related to a proper understanding of who God is, and what his name entails, if there is salvation in no other name than the name of the Lord, then this is of the utmost importance, that God's reputation be safeguarded. So then we can ask this evening, in the light of this commandment, what is our attitude towards God's name? 
towards his reputation. And the question highlights that how we handle his name reveals our heart on these matters. So, what types of behavior does the catechism specifically identify as indicating a low view of the name and the reputation of God? Well, the first is cursing. Fun way to start the body of the sermon. Let's talk about cursing. When we think of cursing, we think of the usual four-letter words that are designated swear words. That's not exactly what Scripture means by cursing, but there is some overlap as we've had opportunity to explore. But in question 99, you'll see a little footnote that cites Leviticus 24, verse 10 through 17. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there, and this is a plain example of what the catechism has in mind when it talks about employing God's name as a curse. Leviticus 24, 10 through 17. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite's woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith, and the, da- the daughter of De- uh, Debri, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him into custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name. He shall be put to death. So there's a little bit of uh, ambiguity about what the situation actually was. Um, So there's two people in the camp of Israel who fight. And one of them uses God's name in what's called a curse. Now, there's two possibilities. Either it was just sort of a general outburst. You can think of a a ruckus, and then things aren't going well, and you just shout God's name in frustration because things aren't going well. Or what seems to be the more likely scenario is that God's name was here employed to curse this person. God's name was almost like a magic spell to generate harm upon a personal opponent. But in either case, the name is not handled with reverence. The name is not handled with awe. There's no worship or adoration. In fact, the context is the exact opposite. It is enmity. It is hatred. And so if it's employed as a simple magical phrase to execute a personal vendetta against someone, you've now conscripted God into a personal feud. You've generated a certain view of God that is unfitting and contrary to who he is. So the contemporary equivalent of something like this would be if we called upon God to condemn someone. We use the word to damn someone or something. Or to attach God's name to some wish for harm 
upon a person, simply telling them where to go in terms of um, the gravest possible punishment of what God will distribute to all those who do not believe. Now, the fact is that such things bear a weight that is not light. Those are the gravest possible invocations of God's name. Condemnation, sending into eternal punishment. And so to bandy them about, to bring about harm in the midst of a feud is most unfitting. And it plants a foul seed in the ears and the minds of those who hear regarding God as cruel and his association now with the quick-tempered and the vengeful. So there's a certain tragedy about that. That Yahweh, the one who reveals himself in word and deed as gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, in contexts like these is evoked and associated with a certain capriciousness, a certain spitefulness, a certain vengeance wrought by a wicked heart. Associations are incredibly contrary to the Lord Jesus Christ, both in his attitude to the wayward and even in his attitude to those who cursed him. As Peter reminds us, when he was reviled, he reviled not, and indeed pronounced a blessing even upon those who were cursing him. And so we can ask, have we taken up God's name to curse others and to experience in a humble heart the mercy that God extends to us in Christ? You can notice also uh, from this particular passage that those who hear, did you catch this? Those who hear the name, they had to place their hands upon the one who spoke the curse. Why is that? Why did they have to go through this ritual of placing hands? Everybody who heard the name. It was only the people who heard the name in the passage. Only they had to put their hands on the one who spoke the curse. Because in some sense, they've participated in his guilt. The laying on the hands of the responsible party is uh, similar to the act of the Day of Atonement, where Aaron lays his hands on uh, the scapegoat and confesses the sins of the people upon the goat and then sends the goat out into the wilderness. It's an act of transfer. It's an act of placing guilt. It's an act of removing guilt and allowing a substitute to bear it. And so in the act of transfer here, it's the acknowledgement that there has been guilt generated in the hearts of the hearers because ill thoughts have been formed of God. Even the quick association of God with an inappropriate notion of God is so grave an offense in the light of his holiness that guilt has occurred, and that must be expunged. And that takes place via the laying on of hands. And so it's in light of this that question 99 also turns to hearing such disparaging of God and feeling nothing one way or the other. Did you notice that? It says that we sit idly by and allow God's name to be handled vainly, lightly, in a manner that is unbefitting. And this also incurs guilt in the light of the commandment. So I was thinking about this, and 
we all have earthly parents or, or earthly grandparents. Um, I got to meet Mrs. Weigel this weekend and the care of uh, a mother willing to travel across the country to, to help her son. And we've all experienced that good care uh, that have come from the hands of parents uh, and grandparents making great sacrifices for their children to ensure uh, that we're positioned to succeed. Now, you can imagine hearing someone ridiculing or attributing to your parents the most offensive actions and attitudes. It's almost unthinkable that you would stand idly by, that you would allow such lies and darkness to be propagated about your parents, those who have demonstrated at great cost the love that they have for us. Now here, the law is inviting us to lament our sometimes indifference towards the name and the reputation of God in our willingness to let that most precious and adorable and holy name be taken and treated as if it were a profane and base and cruel thing. The next sin that it's envisioned is perjury. We'll go a little bit quicker. Leviticus 19.12 reads, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am Yahweh. And so we'll look next week at what's called lawful oaths and vows. So we'll assume for the sake of argument that there are lawful oaths and vows and that God's name is properly evoked as supreme witness in those contexts where we place ourselves and our words, our promises, our witnesses under the veracity of God's witness saying God backs or in some sense verifies or establishes what I'm saying. So now it's wrong to break any promise or word that one gives, but Scripture's clear that there's a certain extra heinousness to invoking God's name as the guarantee of truth and action and then proving oneself to be false or unfaithful. This not only shows little regard for God as a witness, but again, it also then associates God in the minds of those who have seen this with untruth and unfaithfulness. And thus it generates false notions of this God who is infinite in his perfections. Now in the contemporary saying, we still take oaths and vows, right? You all have. You've all taken vows to be members at this church. God has served as witnesses God serves as witnesses in a witness in a court setting, in the swearing in of political office to this day, in marriage vows, in ordination vows. There are all manner of circumstances where it's still appropriate, where the gravity and the perfections of God's name verify the, the weight and the, the truthfulness that must be assumed for those contexts to unfold rightly. And so there's a sense in which when we violate those vows, when we violate those oaths, there is that extra layer of heinousness that is, um, that is prohibited in the third commandment. So the last category that the question is concerned with is unnecessary oaths. 
And this means invoking God's name or swearing an oath in God's name in situations that do not require any weight of authority behind them. It's dragging God's name into profane and mundane situations. So question 99 cites Matthew 37, which reads, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. And so what this um, inappropriate oath seems to be envisioning is incorporating God into common and everyday speech. Not in the sense that we delight to infuse God into all of our conversations. We delight to infuse Christ into all of our conversations. But in the sense of bandying his name about in the same way that you would use any other name, any other common thing, with no sense of gravity attending this matchless name. I remember when I was a little kid uh, playing baseball, I was maybe 11 or, or 10 years old, and there was another kid who was about the same age, and he asked the coach to borrow a dollar for the concession stand. Do you remember concession stands as a kid? That was the only reason I played baseball until I was like 15. So he asked, he asked the coach to borrow a dollar for a sports drink from the concession stand, and he said he would pay him back, and then he said, swear to God. And the coach was a Christian. And he handled the little guy gently, but he said something to the effect of, there's no need to swear, I believe you. And so it's exchanges like that, where the matchless name is brought into an oath of such utter triviality that undercuts the gravity that ought to attend the taking of the name of God the name of the Lord Jesus Christ upon our lips. It's a thoughtless evocation. It's a thoughtless use of this splendid name. So then question 99 turns and then begins to carve out that positive disposition. Well, what is the proper disposition? What is the proper posture of the heart towards the name of God, which he has revealed to us as the source of our greatest joy, as the source of our greatest hope, as the source of our life? So you can turn to Psalm 99 if you like. We'll use this to kind of bring our meditation to a close. Psalm 99 verses 1 through 5, the Lord reigns let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established justice. You have executed justice. You have established equity, you have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. So you can listen to these descriptions of praise. These descriptions of adoration. God is great. He is exalted. He is holy. He is righteous. He is just. Scripture says that God is infinite in his perfections. His eternal blessedness is incomprehensible. So magnificent and marvelous is his person. And he has condescended to make himself known, not in curse, but in blessing to us, we who are dust and ashes. And it's not just to 
the inhabitants of the earth. It's all of creation which is caught up in this resounding praise of this matchless being. It opens, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. Not just the inhabitants, but the created order itself responds to the blessedness of this perfect God. And the psalm specifically focuses on his name, who God is, his attribute, his works, his will, all of it summed up with this single designation of his name. And here, how does it describe his name? As great and awesome, or maybe even exceedingly awesome, as an object that is worthy of all praise and adoration. Awesome is kind of an unfortunate word these days, isn't it? Say it rather blithely. Man, that's awesome. But it means awe-evoking. You can think of awful. It's awful, not in the sense of, of, well, it's not terribly different from the sense of dreadful because it's related to the word for fear. At the heart of this Hebrew word is the word for fear, which is the appropriate posture in front of one that is incomprehensible in scope and glory and majesty. The way you would stand before a forest fire, the way that you would stand before the ocean, the way that you would stand before the Grand Canyon, literally at a loss for words in the size of in the, in the light of such glory. And that's the idea. The idea is that as we come to a clearer and fuller understanding of who God is, the more we yield to him what is rightfully his, which is summed up in the Old Testament as the fear of the Lord, or in the New Testament as worship in reverence and awe. And so we can close with the question we started with. What would our posture towards his name be if we understood something of his infinity of holiness, the infinity of his love? Think of the person on this earth that you are most fond of. What does their name do to your heart? Doubtless it brings great joy and great warmth. That's just a flicker of the adoration that would be appropriately bestowed upon the Lord. He who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, became poor. What's the appropriate posture of heart towards this great God? So where does this leave us? It leaves us humbled, right? It leaves us humbled. Because even if we don't treat God's name lightly so frequently, we all know that we entertain thoughts of God that are far too low of him. They do not correspond with either his word or his works. And so we are all laid bare before this commandment to reverence God rightly and to handle that which he has used to reveal himself with the reverence and awe and gravity that it deserves. But it also leaves us craving more of this spiritual life, doesn't it? Knowing that this is God's delight, to give more grace, to cause us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The more we come to see his infinite mercy which is so near the heart of who God has revealed himself to be, the Lord, the Lord, 
gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, the more we come to taste and see that this is who God is, the more we desire for this spiritual life to be worked out in us, the more we desire to become imitators of God, reflecting a flicker of the righteousness reflected even in this commandment. But last, it gives us a greater and more intense appreciation of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he walked this earth, he only ever spoke and acted in a way that perfectly revealed the Heavenly Father. So much so that in word and in deed, in person and in act, he is the exact image of the invisible God. Indeed, all who have seen the Son have seen the Father. And this perfect life and display of perfect righteousness was set forth in our stead and for us to bear the punishment that we deserve with all our low and base thoughts about the one in whom there is nothing low, nothing base. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for your word, which is hard but good, the life that you're working out in us, and the perfect forgiveness and righteousness applied to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to desire these things and to come to a greater and fuller and more appropriate understanding of who you are in our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.